Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No, I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm joined today by a former Slate writer who we all miss a lot at the magazine, Karen Hahn. Hey, Karen. Hi, Dana. It's so good to be back on Spoiler Specials. Uh, Yeah, I know you've been doing the working podcast, but other than that, is this the first time you've returned for a, a podcast guest spot? I've done a few Culture Gab Fest slots since leaving as well, so I, I have still been bouncing around the Slate Podcast Network. But yes, I am a permanent co-host of Working, so spoiler special listeners, go check out Working. <laughs> yeah, Karen, I love that it's you, Isaac Butler, and June Thomas now who are the three co-hosts of Working, or not co-hosts, but you, you share it among the three of you, because I know that whenever I put that podcast on, I'm going to hear one of my faves. Oh, thank you. You're very welcome. So I identified you as a former Slate staffer, which you are, but you're you're now in, in LA and you're doing all kinds of different things. Do you want to talk at all about what you're up to professionally right now? Yeah, sure. Um, So I moved out here as some other, if you've heard me on another Slate podcast, you've probably heard me talk about this before. I moved out to LA to more seriously pursue screenwriting. But the big news that I actually can talk about is that I have a book coming out this November called Bong Joon-ho Distant Cinema. It's all about the work of director Bong Joon-ho. It's part of a big series of monographs that Abrams and Little White Lies have been doing. You may have seen some of their books before. They have big volumes on the Coen brothers, Paul Thomas Anderson, David Fincher. Uh, They have one coming out pretty soon on Sofia Coppola. And then my Bong book, as I've been calling it, is coming out in November. So please check that out. (laughs) That is so thrilling. And I can't wait. That's such a great combination of writer and subject. And uh, I mean, I've seen all his movies, but I have not read a lot on his movies. And there's no one I'd rather read on than you. So congratulations. Thank you so much. So we're talking today about the new Pixar film, Turning Red. Do you want to give us any background on um, on this movie, how it's what it means in the Pixar universe and uh, why you want to come in and talk about it? Oh, well, I mean, I obviously want to talk about this movie because I think it's great, but I was invited to come talk about it. I'm going to guess because I'm an Asian person who is related to the Slate podcast family. But it is about a young girl basically starting to experience puberty, which in this movie is kind of manifested by her turning into a giant red panda. The movie explains their family's connection to this kind of mystical creature. And it's kind of a mother-daughter story, I think executed better than 
in any movie that I've seen previously, at least like kind of in the animated kids movie genre, because I know Brave was sort of going for that as well. But I really do think Turning Red is unimpeachably good. I think it's extremely good. I'm curious to hear what you think about it as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of firsts about Turning Red. The subject matter and themes, which we will definitely get to. Also, the fact that the director is a woman, the first solo woman director of a Pixar film. Uh, her name is Domi Shi, and she also directed Bao, which was that short about a dumpling, uh, which I believe preceded The Incredibles 2 a few years ago, was tied to that feature. But it's the first time that a solo woman has taken on a Pixar movie, so that's big. She is also an Asian-American, and I believe that this is a partly autobiographical story about a girl growing up in an immigrant community in in, uh, in Toronto at the turn of the millennium, which is an interesting time to set it as well. We can talk about that, you know, because of the place of boy bands and the absence of social media in the way that we have it now. Just a curious, you know, moment to set a story like this at. But yeah, you're mentioning Brave made me think about this theme of transformation that runs through so many Pixar movies. I mean, obviously, through all kinds of animated and fantasy movies, there's the idea of transformation. But Pixar seems like it, in particular, often uses those kind of stories as an allegory to talk about something else, right? I mean, Brave is also a story of transformation. And I couldn't stop thinking about it while watching this because it's also a mother-daughter tale, right? And there's a moment in both where the mother turns into a kind of somewhat frightening kind of giant bear of sorts, you know. But this, I agree, is a more successful movie than Brave overall, though I liked Brave more than, than many critics did. And the reason this is a more successful movie, I think, has to do with the fact that the experience that it records is at a very specific time and place and with this very specific person and history. And also, I feel like this, this movie is just clearer on its themes and what it's trying to say about growing up and it, the things that it's trying to explore about growing up than Brave was, which was maybe if it ended up being slotted a little bit more into a typical fairy tale kind of structure. I mean, there's something about Turning Red that's just very unusual. It treats things that we almost never see treated in animated film and specifically things about the female experience of growing up, including getting your period. Like, that was the very first thing I wanted to talk about, because it's one of the first things that happens in the movie. The first time that May, the main character, transforms into this red panda and learns that she has this matrilineal curse, blessing upon her family that causes all the women in, in that line to turn into this kind of creature when they experience intense emotions. The first time that happens to her, which is in the first maybe 10 minutes of the movie or so, her mom thinks, logically enough, that she's getting her period because she runs into the bathroom, starts to cry, says, don't come in, I'm a monster. And how explicit that scene was, was the very first thing that I, I was thrilled with about this movie. You know, that it didn't tiptoe around the fact that that was what her mom thought was what was going on. Her mom goes and gets the pads and knocks on the door. And there's just, a again, like a specificity and a, a literality to that moment that I, I really appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the things that really sets this movie apart. Like, because stuff like menstruation, or at least puberty in any more explicit fashion isn't something that generally tends to be put in kids movies i think because we're trying not to like talk too much about that kind of part of growing up because it tends to i guess border on more pg-13 kind of material but when i was talking to a lot of my peers about this movie that was one of the things that came up a lot along with the fact that this movie's kind of unapologetically horny in a teen way where the way that may kind of really discovers that she's going through this is she realizes that she has a crush on a teen boy who works as a clerk at a local little mart and then starts like drawing um fantasy images of them together like drawing him as a mermaid or drawing him like holding her in like extra muscular arms and stuff like that which is very funny and i also think 
not really something that we've seen in animated movies before. Like usually when we see a crush, it's just the character developing heart eyes. It's never anything more explicit or less innocent than that. Yeah, it's true. Even just the implication that she has a body, you know, that has desire is is something that's unusual in children's movies. I mean, another film that this made me think of, and I think I mentioned in my review, is Inside Out. And this is a kind of strange mirror reflection of Inside Out, where that is about a girl who's maybe slightly younger, maybe she's supposed to be 11 or 12, who's letting go of her childhood self, right? But there's not yet the advent of the adult self. And this has a very similar internal struggle to Inside Out, but what she's really doing is is welcoming the adult that she's becoming, you know? And that, like you say, is something that is just a much more delicate thing to make a movie about, something that you could easily become sort of hand-ringy or touchy-feely, that this movie somehow avoids doing. And I really admired that it, it, it manages to strike the right tone in doing so. And obviously we have to talk about the fact that the central relationship is between May or May Lin Lee, um, who's voiced by Rosalie Chiang, and her mother, Ming Lee, voiced by Sandra Oh. What I like about their relationship is I feel like usually when it's a story about a sort of helicopter parent or an overprotective parent, it tends to start on an antagonistic foot. But in this case, it's evidently clear that May and her mother really love each other and really care about each other. And that May really does want her mother's approval, not in a way that's necessarily ruining her life, but does impact her other friendships. Like she has this core group of three other friends who it's basically shown that she doesn't hang out with kind of as much as they or she would really like because she feels that she has to work at the little temple that her family runs basically out of duty to her family. Right. And the movie is is delicate about that, too. I mean, it, it shows that filial loyalty and responsibility is a huge part of her life, but also the toll that that takes on her. And I appreciated that, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's pretty typical in, in representations of an immigrant community that the parents have these very high expectations for the kid, and the kid feels torn between the fun that they want to have with their friends and their parents' expectations. But this movie did such a good job, as you say, of not turning the parents into sort of villains, you know, or the mom into a villain for, for having these different expectations of May than she has for herself. In fact, you see her genuine torn you know, she actually does enjoy pleasing her parents and helping at the temple and being with her family in the first 10 minutes or so of the movie that kind of set up what, what their family life is like. Yeah, like there's an entire scene at the beginning where she's like high-fiving her mom as they clean up the temple and then they have these like choreographed routines that they do. And it's really, really cute and endearing. Yeah, I love that portrait of the family at the beginning, because otherwise the mom could easily have, and the grandmother as well, who we'll talk about later, could have become these kind of villains because they're opposing the fun that May wants to be having with her friends. So in talking about the the friend group, who is another big part of the movie, we have to also mention Four Town, which is the the boy band that all four girls are obsessed with. So Four Town is, you probably having grown up more in this era than me can speak to exactly who Four Town is supposed to be parroting and spoofing, but it's a very loving spoof at any rate. I I mean, I would say that aesthetically, they're definitely kind of leaning more towards the One Direction sort of look, but musically, they're extremely Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's exactly who I would have guessed, so maybe I'm not as, as out of <laughs> millennial music as I, as I thought I was. And it's also worth saying that their music is written by Phineas O'Connell and Billie Eilish, mm-hmm. the brother-sister team, right, behind Billie Eilish's career, and their music really bangs. It's really good. Been- it's very catchy. Yeah, and the big concert sequence at the end, I in a way I wanted it to just turn into a concert yeah. film where we could watch Four Town in their in their full glory. Yeah, where it's like I also want to go to the Four Town concert. Yeah, you can see why they're willing to, you know, 
deceive their parents and go to these extreme lengths to be able to sneak out to Fortown. So I want to talk about what happens after her friend group learns about this transformation process that May is suddenly going through after her first pandification. But let's take a little break first for a word from our sponsor. If you enjoy the Slate Spoiler Special, the best way to support our show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. When you are a Slate Plus member, you get no ads on any Slate podcasts, you get unlimited reading on the Slate website, so you'll have access to every article, every advice column, you'll never hit a paywall, and you get bonus segments or episodes on many of our shows, like Slow Burn, The Political Gab Fest, or my own weekly show, The Slate Culture Gab Fest. And when you support the podcast, you're also supporting Slate. We would not be able to do the journalism that we do without your help. So to join today, go to slate.com slash spoiler plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash spoiler plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, back to turning red. So let's say we are now at the spoiler point, (laughs) the point where we have to start giving away more of the plot than we would give away in a review. May has now discovered that she has this blessing curse. She's not yet come to terms with it. So her parents want her to keep this on the down low until, as they explain to her, and here again comes the menstruation metaphor, in one month, when there's the next red moon, she will have a chance to do this sort of ritual with in the temple with the Chinese community that will exercise the panda and, and allow her to get back to her non-panda self. But over the course of that month, a lot of other things change in her friendships and in, within her that make her less sure that she wants to get rid of the panda self. So we'll name her friends really quickly. There's Miriam, voiced by Ava Morse. There's Priya, voiced by Maitreyi Ramakrishnan. And then there's Abby, played by Hayne Park. And they form like this kind of group of four core girls who I honestly really like that they don't really double take at seeing May as a panda. Like there's no real adjustment period. And I kind of like that because I do feel like if you were a kid, that is how you would react. Like we're conditioned to react to transformations like this in movies, but being like, whoa, like, what do we do now? Or like, I can't accept this. But when you're a kid, it's like, oh, cool. My friend can turn into a giant red panda. That fucking rules. Oh, sorry for cursing. (laughs) Like, that's great. That's what I, that's awesome. And now that's just another cool thing that my friend can do, which I really appreciated. But basically kind of What's funny to me is that the kind of core engine of the film is the fact that these four girls just really want to go to this boy band concert. They all try to convince their parents to let them go, but they obviously say no. And so their plan becomes trying to raise the money on their own um, in order to buy tickets and go. Uh, And the main way that they raise money ends up being using May's panda powers because all the other kids when they realize that that she can do this, love it. They're obsessed with the red panda. They want pictures with the red panda. They want red panda merch. And the kids start hawking these wares in order to reach their ticket goal. Yeah, a bunch of people pointed out in their reviews something that had not occurred to me, which is that this is basically the plot of Teen Wolf, the middle part of Teen Wolf (laughs) as well, with Michael J. Fox, which I'm not sure I even ever saw Teen Wolf, although I myself was a teen when it came out, so I, I should have seen it. But yeah, I think it's a similar kind of thing where he almost monetizes this cool thing that he can 
can do, you know, and sort of learn, learns to turn it into a social advantage rather than a disadvantage and a financial advantage in, in May's case. And so she's basically doing this while sneaking around both of her parents. We should also shout out oh, the wonderful Orion Lee as um, May's dad, who you may remember from First Cow. I just want to shout out that movie any chance I get. Oh, yeah. And and it's similar character in a way. He plays this sweet, gentle soul that reminded me a little bit of the, the cook that he plays in First Cow. The fact that he's this very kind of more soft-spoken character, although I guess he is the more verbose of the pair in First Cow. But as the kids are raising this money, May's popularity kind of skyrockets, and she ends up being invited to perform at the birthday party of one of her classmates, who up until this point has kind of been a bit of a bully to her. But the amount of money that he's willing to pay her to come in panda form to his party is just enough to put them over the ticket mark. So she agrees to go. That scene at the party, I think, is an important turning point in in terms of May's desire and the things that she wants to do versus the things that her parents want, right? Because she goes very reluctantly to that party. She has to be sort of dragged there by her friends. But then once she's there, she really gets into her inner panda and is sort of, you know, getting down. And you see the part of her that starts to realize, like, that there's something in the panda that she doesn't want to get rid of. Yeah, it's just unfortunate that the party ends up taking a turn for the worse. So at the party, there are these kind of two conflicting things that are happening. The first thing is that at home, her mother realizes that she has snuck out and seeing a flyer for the party immediately heads to the party. And this is also after she has kind of already promised her mother that she won't panda out, quote unquote, anymore, um, because the rest of her family sort of implies that the more she does this, the harder it'll be for the ritual to be successful and the more power this panda will have in her life. Meanwhile, at the party, tensions are high. And as the friend who hired her, Tyler, voiced by Tristan Alert Chen, kind of keeps bullying her or kind of ordering her around, her last nerve snaps and she pounces on him. This happens exactly as her mother arrives at the party, um, which is kind of the worst timing possible. Right. So then at that moment, her mother realizes not only has she spread the word to all of her friends, right, but she's also kind of becoming aggressive and out there in a way that her mother is, is horrified by. And here's a moment where I wish that the movie had gone a little deeper into something, which is that her mother's own mother, May's grandmother, comes onto the scene fairly late in the movie, around this time, right? For the ritual, in fact, I think is why she arrives at their house. And there's a whole backstory about how her mother had a relationship with her mother where she felt that she wasn't allowed to become the red panda and that there's a difficulty there. And when we get to the big climactic scene, we'll see how that plays out. But I wished there had been a bit more exploration of that mother-daughter relationship as well, so that you kind of knew what her mother had invested, what her mother did exactly when she was 13 or whatever age she was when her panda came out and she had to struggle with it. It was a moment when that character voiced by Sandra Oh, who, as you said earlier, is, is a great character, way more than just a villain, where she deserved a little bit more backstory time, I think. I don't think the movie suffers for the lack of it, but I do agree that if I was going to say, like, let's have a Turning Red spinoff, I would love to see more about the relationship between um, Ming and May's grandmother, voiced by Wai Ching Ho, because I think that's something... I don't know, like, as a child of immigrants, I feel like you sort of implicitly understand, like, what that relationship is like, but at the same time, 
often you feel like a slight disconnect from your history as someone who's born here rather than your quote unquote home country. Um, and so I don't know, always exploring that relationship is always interesting to me. I mean, if the metaphor is that getting rid of your panda is kind of repressing in some way, some of your inner freedom, then there's just, I guess I wanted a slightly happier ending <laughs> for Sandra O's oh character than, oh, I better repress it again because repression works for me. It just doesn't work for you. And so the idea that maybe she had left some part of herself behind that she needed to find again at the end would have been an interesting conclusion. I think that there is a little bit, but we can discuss that when we talk about the ending, because it is specifically like what happens at the end that I think implies that there's a little bit of more of a chance for her to connect with her inner panda again. But we'll talk about that in a second. (laughs) Yeah, I want to hear what you have to say about that. So her mother surprises her at this party, is horrified that she's gone out, snuck out, you know, to become the the panda independently. And then there's this moment when this friend group that since the beginning of the movie has been shown to just be ultra tight, you know, which, as you say, even discovering that your friend transforms into a giant fuzzy beast doesn't doesn't do anything to take away from the friendship. But there's this moment of betrayal among May and her friends that that sets up uh, the emotional stakes of the ending. Do you want to describe that moment? Yeah. Um. And so we talked a little bit about the beginning about her how her relationship with her mother and her sense of familial obligation kind of conflicts with her relationships with her friends, and it really comes to a head here. May's mother effectively blames her friends for all of this happening. She says they've been taking advantage of May and that they told her to do this. And when they look at May to basically implicitly ask her to defend them and to tell her mom what really happened, May doesn't. She turns away and lets her friends basically take the fall for what's occurred. Yeah, and that's a moment where that beat, I feel like, could have maybe been drawn out a tiny bit more because at the, when by the time they get to the concert at the end, her friends have forgiven her, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of scans with, again, what kind of kid logic is like when you're 13, where stuff kind of flows over your back like water most of the time unless it's something really really dramatic and then when you see how they do bond again it's actually very sweet i think it's it's at the concert right there's just a moment that that miriam one of the friends i think the friend who was the angriest at her probably sort of wins her back by talking about four town you know isn't it isn't it the case that one of them just says like four town forever and it's sort of through their love of the boy band that they they find their friendship again Yeah, they bond over the boy band again, especially since they're at the concert now. Um, And it's revealed that Miriam has been taking care of May's Tamagotchi this entire time. Like, she hasn't really turned her back on her. It's just a matter of May kind of having to apologize for what she's done. Because I think it is pretty clearly set up that her friends sort of understand that her relationship with her mother is kind of fraught from the beginning. I did like that scene because I think... When you're a child, it's kind of impossible to stand up to your parents under any circumstances because you're so conditioned to think that adults will always be right and that you have to take some kind of responsibility for that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you completely see, given May's background and the way she relates to her mother, why at that moment, you know, her mother's word would have would have been law. And in fact, that really that gives the the end a lot of stakes between the mother and the daughter, which I can't wait to talk about. One little thing I wanted to mention, because you mentioned the Tamagotchi, is that I was trying to think about why this was said at the turn of the millennium, other than the fact that it's true to the director's own experience, maybe, you know, the demographic that she's in. And I think the Tamagotchi may be a part of it, you know, just the idea that there would be this little virtual pet, you know, that there was this moment that virtual pets were kind of in fashion. It's a way to have that be this little talisman between the two girls. And another big reason to set it not in the present day is that social media would completely have changed this panda situation, right? I mean, at some point, somebody would have leaked the video of her turning into a panda and 
it would have gone around on TikTok or something, there would have been a whole other plot element to deal with, which would be the outside world learning about it. So I really want to get to the climactic concert, which I think is, is a great ending to the movie. But first, May has to go through the exorcism ritual, I almost want to call it, with the red moon. So if you want to talk a little bit about that scene, um, I would love it. The family gathers, four of uh, May's aunties show up, one of the neighborhood men, Mr. Gao, voiced by the great James Hong, shows up. Everyone shows up to help the ritual go through. As May is sort of stewing about what's just happened at the party and her relationship with her friends, her father discovers the video that she and her friends had taken of while they were kind of doing panda stuff in order to get the money. And when he shows it to her, she sort of says like, oh, like you can delete it. Like, I don't need that anymore. But he tells her that he thinks it was really fun and that she seems to be really enjoying her panda nature and that relationship with her friends, which causes her to kind of start second guessing her choice. When they start going through with the ritual, uh, she's sort of transported to this magical bamboo forest where she meets the ancestor who kicked all of this off. Um, and in that moment, she decides that she actually doesn't want to get rid of the panda part of herself. Um, she breaks the ritual, decides she's going to the four town concert and then breaks out of the house and heads straight for the concert arena. Yeah, that's a very trippy sequence where she meets her ancestor in the um, in the forest, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's quite beautiful. The animation style even changes a lot. As I remember, it almost looks like drawn animation, right? When she's like moving, moving back in time to greet her ancestor. It's definitely a lot dreamier. Like it's a lot hazier and kind of very clearly communicated as something that's otherworldly. And as she's leaving, obviously it's a huge commotion because her family doesn't want her to leave. As we discover, the ritual kind of contains the red panda soul in some kind of amulet or object that the person will have to keep a hold of. And as she leaves, she accidentally knocks her mother over and her mother's talisman cracks. Another great metaphor, right? Because, of course, what she's really doing is just pushing her mother to the brink. But the idea of kind of literalizing it in the amulet is great. And obviously this has huge ramifications for what happens next, but we will talk about those after this ad break. All right, back to Turning Red. And now I think we can talk about this climactic ending, which is one of my favorite parts of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. <laughs> so as I write about in my review of Turning Red for Slate, I really love the uh, the action climax to this movie. And I'm someone who usually tends to think, even for animated kids' movies, that action climaxes are too long and too bloated and there's too much kablammo and we could do with, you know, 10 minutes less of it. And yet... I absolutely love this sequence that goes on for, I don't know, the last 15, 20 minutes of the movie where the girls attend the concert and a series of calamitous events conspire to make this seem like this crazy combination of a concert movie and a kaiju battle movie. <laughs> so Karen, there's so much going on in this final scene. I don't know if you liked it as much as I did. But I do you loved talk? it. Right? I mean, doesn't it just completely succeed on all I levels? I laughed so much. It's just, Turning Red is just such a good movie. Yeah, it really is. We actually should have started up top with that, just like a big thumbs up from both of us. And I did, I loved it more than, I think more than any Pixar movie in the last five, six years, probably, even though I was a big, big fan of Luca last year and, you know, was a huge proponent of, of people seeing Luca. This is somewhat similar to Luca in the sense that it feels like a personal story, you know, and that it has a regional specificity. But I think it's, it's a more unusual and, and even better movie. So 
let's get into this last sequence. Um, I will I will l- let you first talk about what happens to Ming, um, Sandra O's oh's character, the mom, after, as we said earlier, her amulet breaks, her inner panda that she's been repressing, you know, for her whole life since she was May's age, comes out for the first time, and what happens then? Yeah, it's really funny because it's set up a tiny, tiny bit beforehand because um, Orion, or Orion Lee's character, uh, May's father, sort of tells May that when her mother's panda uh, came out, as it were, it was really, really destructive and big, hence the scar on her grandmother's face. But that even doesn't prepare us for the scope of what Ming's panda is like. We get these incredibly hilarious shots of this giant shadowy monster, this kind of Godzilla-sized monster just loping around Toronto on the way to the concert because May immediately heads for the Four Town concert, immediately manages to reunite with her friends and make up with them because they're at this place that they all wanted to go to may recognizes that she was wrong to sort of lie about what her friends was doing and they make up but basically immediately as that happens the giant panda that is her mother destroys about half of the stadium on her way in yeah so this this is the moment where disaster movie and concert movie comes together and somehow incongruously the music continues throughout right or maybe there's a brief period where the boy band isn't singing the music stops for a little bit but the boy band is even you know sort of coming back into play giving this almost personal concert as the uh, as the destructive chaos is is playing out in this final scene. Yeah, well, we should note that the reason that the music comes back is as we see the ritual being performed prior, there is a sort of chant or musical component to it. Um, And obviously what they're trying to do now is contain Ming's panda and what happens in order to make that happen is all of the women of the family break their own amulets. We even see like a hairpin or something like that. They all become pandas in their effort to take Ming down and put her back inside the ritual circle. And as they start chanting, so do the boy band kind of start helping that music and both of the things intermix so perfectly. Like this movie has it locked down on every level. Yeah, I think the reason we're both responding so strongly to that big action scene at the end is that And the reason, as I was saying earlier, that I often disconnect from action scenes is that action and character are so tied together. You know, it should be taught in a screenwriting class because you have the symbolic confrontation between the mother-daughter playing out, right? And then you have the, the, the culture war going on in between the chanting of the Chinese relatives and, you know, the singing of the boy band. And meanwhile, the, the friendship story is also playing out because the friends are there. It's just, it's a moment when the story of the movie is advancing, even as there's kind of all this crazy, chaotic action happening. It's just executed so well and in such a smart funny way like even if you can sort of see the beat of all the aunties also becoming pandas coming it doesn't make it any less effective well the animate animation too just really shines in that part because i mean i would say the most the most unusual thing about the animation of this movie what makes it look the most different from other pixar movies when it does i mean it does have a very typical pixar visual style in many ways but the pandas are just incredible the, the plushiness of their fur you know the way they are at once kind of cute and terrifying i mean especially in the case of Ming's, but it's hard to communicate that in a, in a character, in an animated character, right? I mean, what it means to the person who's who's transforming. And you can see both, you know, the adorableness of the panda that make these kids willing to shell out to go to a party so they can dance with the cute panda, and also that it's kind of frightening to her, you know, that it's a part of her that, um, that she doesn't otherwise experience, especially in the case of her mother Ming, who is a much more repressed, you know, uptight, traditional kind of person, and who's been re- repressing her panda for much longer. Yeah, it's funny. I honestly did think of Bao a little bit as I was watching the sequence because it's sort of addressing the same things about how this level of familial love can sometimes feel a little suffocating where she ends up 
the mother and bow ends up eating the bow that's supposed to symbolize her son. And it's sort of the same effect here when you see this giant panda coming to confront this tiny, tiny girl. But what happens next is they manage to pull off the ritual successfully. All the aunties, her mom, her grandmother, and May herself end up in that sort of spirit or dream realm and slowly pass through the sort of portal that means that they will once again be untied from their panda and not have to deal with it in their everyday lives. But the kind of crucial part is that May sees this kind of younger manifestation of her mother in the dream forest if you want to take it from there dana oh yeah i mean that scene just made me think of this is kind of an out there comparison but have you seen petite maman the new not yet, not yet. movie i mean it's about a very similar idea the entire movie is spinning out the idea that what if a little girl met her mother when she was a little girl you know that they're a little bit younger than the than the kids in this movie but yeah this idea of confronting your mom as a kid is is, is common to both and it's so scary because i think especially when you are the, the age that May is, when you're 13, the idea that your parents, these kind of monoliths in your life, would ever be that vulnerable is really scary to think about. Yeah, that scene was quite moving. Although, again, this is to get back to one of my few criticisms of Turning Red, I think that that scene, you know, where the younger version of Sandra O's oh's character confronts her daughter and sort of confesses her vulnerability and is basically kind of led out of that symbolic forest of, of childhood by her daughter would be much stronger if we knew a little bit more about Ming's relationship with her mother. And that could have just literally been after the grandmother comes to visit, we see, you know, her and the mom cooking together or cleaning the temple, you know, having some sort of interaction that doesn't involve the whole family, but just involves the two of them. Because I think I just, I didn't know. Well, I feel like you almost get that at the beginning, like when um, her dad picks up the phone, it's like, it's your mom, and the mom immediately tries to hide and not yeah, answer I think, phone. I mean, I think I just liked that character so much in Sandra O's voice characterization that I wanted to know her just a bit better. I had a question for you, too, about the mom depandifying, because you said early on in our conversation that you didn't think it was just repression. You know, you didn't think that the, the final answer for Ming was just, okay, I'm I'm pushing my panda back underground again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so again, we reali- we discover that the way that they get rid of the pandas, quote unquote, is to have the sort of talisman with them that w- contains the panda spirit. But in the concert arena, they don't have the luxury of choosing what talisman that they'll use and end up just using random objects that are just around. Um, and in the case of her mother, it's May's Tamagotchi that her panda goes into. And afterwards, as we see the movie's kind of resolution, we see that her mom is still kind of playing with it and kind of more engaged with it. Like she's feeding it and taking care of it and obviously like finds it kind of more cute or appealing rather than this thing that she's had to hide the whole time. It's something that appeals to her now or something that she kind of understands better and wants to take better care of, or at least that's how I read it. That's a great detail that I hadn't noticed. I mean, I did notice her playing with it, but I sort of thought that just generally showed that she had loosened up and gotten a bit happier. Um, but yeah, the idea that she's nurturing her panda is, is great. Yeah, I think they make that clear like in the beat right after that. Like, her grandma ends up having to use, like, something related to four town, and she's complaining about how four is a lucky number. (laughs) An unlucky number, rather. All right, so having sung the praises of that deliriously weird, uh, chaotic action sequence, let's talk about the little coda at the very end of the movie. It's some time has passed, not too much time, because they, as you pointed out, they're still repairing the stadium that was broken into by a giant kaiju panda. (laughs) But we see May and her friends uh, heading off to school, and May's relationship to her inner panda has changed in an interesting way. Yeah, so we now see that she occasionally will let parts of the panda out, like a panda tail or panda ears that all kind of suggest that she has a better relationship with it, or I guess to put it in a more 
abstract way, she has a better handle on her emotions and she knows better how to process them. Yeah, and there's almost an element that the panda's like an accessory now. <laughs> you know, it made me it made me think of those filters, you know, where kids will put like bunny ears on their face or something, but they're real. She can actually pop her own fluffy ears and tail out and who wouldn't do that on occasion? Yeah, definitely. That's such a good comparison. Um, and yeah, it's, it's shown that like at the little temple that they run now, the panda's like kind of a mascot in more of an active way than it was before and that people are kind of excited by it and embrace it rather than shunning it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is actually a beautiful metaphor once again for menstruation, which I am so convinced that this movie is about just as much as it's about, you know, about Asian American culture, about growing up. It really is specifically about getting your period and it's kind of incredible <laughs> that there is a movie for kids and young women that's about that. I thought about that at the end, though, when she's kind of growing her ears and tail, that, that she's gotten past a certain amount of shame, you know, that the panda is no longer a shame, but it's sort of incorporated into her conception of her body and who she is becoming as a young woman. Yeah, it's really, really refreshing. And I almost hope that or I do hope that more stories kind of take this messaging, because I do feel like menstruation is something we still feel embarrassed to discuss at all. Like, it's still something that's considered embarrassing or something that you have to hide, which I wish it wasn't because a lot of people have to go through it. Yeah, it really, it made me think also about my own status as a, you know, person of a generation where that would never have been talked about, you know, and it would have been completely embarrassing. And uh, and the idea that it can become something that kids might go to the mall and see the movie and laugh about it, including boys, you know, is something that, that seems like a, a real step forward. The last note I would make about the movie is that you should watch it until the very end, the entire credit sequence. I mean, Pixar credit sequences in general are worth watching because they have fun animation in the background and they're just really well done. But because of the music, you know, instead of getting to hear just scraps of the music with dialogue over it or a tiny little bit that you hear at the concert weaving in and out with the with Chinese chanting, you just get to hear some straight up pop song spoofs uh, written again by Phineas O'Connell and Billie Eilish. And they're so funny and so sweet. They're really good and so adept at replicating the bands that they're supposed to sound like that afterwards I was sort of like humming to myself and I was like, wait, no, this is an actual back Street Boys song. This is not the song from the movie, but they sounds they're just done so well in terms of similarity. I also want to shout out one more sequence. Uh, one of the ways that they sort of sow the seeds of discontent between May and her mother is that May, we talked a little bit earlier about her developing this crush on a clerk. Uh, her mother discovers those sketches and obviously goes straight to the corner shop and confronts the boy with the drawings. The scene is fun in and of itself, but I think what really makes it pop are the drawings themselves, which are so perfectly like adolescent attempts at replicating the styles of like manga or anime if anyone listening is familiar with that book like how to draw manga that's exactly the feeling of the drawings that may's doing they're so funny and i would bet at least a limb on the fact that they're drawing specifically from the experiences of someone who worked on the movie they're so so funny and so good all right. Well, maybe by way of outro music, we can listen to some of that, um, some of that Billie Eilish, Phineas O'Connell pop that we hear at the end of the, at the of the film. I really hope that people, even if they're not Pixar people, will give Turning Red a try. Although, who, who isn't a Pixar person? I really don't want to know know somebody who doesn't like any Pixar movie. And it's also both a blessing and a curse going straight to Disney Plus, so it will be very easily accessible. Although that said, I really wish I had had the opportunity to see this in a theater because I feel like the boy band songs and especially the big battle at the end would 
kill in a theater. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I didn't visually really apprehend this movie as well as, as I like to apprehend a movie that cares as much about visuals as this movie does. And there's so much care and detail that you can't see on a small screen. And, you know, we didn't talk much about the color, but, you know, the way red is used throughout the movie and has all these changing meanings. It's just, it's a movie that's really been put together with a great deal of love and care and attention to detail. And I think that would be great to see on the big screen. I agree. Domi, she crushed it. She crushed it. She absolutely it. did. And, you know, people who have been saying, well, Pixar is just making the same thing over and over. They need to see this because I, f- I feel like if the future of Pixar goes in this direction, I feel good about it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Karen, that was a, a dream conversation. Thanks so much for coming in to talk about Turning Red. Thank you so much for having me. Always a delight. We'll talk again soon. That's it for this Slate Spoiler Special. Please subscribe to our show in the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And please, if you like it, rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps bring new people to the show. And as always, if you have suggestions for other movies or TV shows we should spoil or other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Jasmine Ellis. The senior managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. For Karen Hahn, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.